1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of October 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer here at Slate, and I'm joined today by uh, the New York Times Magazine staff writer and Political Gab host, Emily Bazelon. Hey, Emily. Hey, Katie. And the founder of this program, um, writer and critic Megan O'Rourke, also the author of The New Sun and Days. Um, Hey, Megan. Hey, Katie. Hey, Emily. A program note about next month, uh, we will be discussing Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. Also, a reminder that this is the storied and long-awaited show, um, at the end of which we will append my legendary bus joke, which, trust me, you don't want to miss. This is for Slate Plus members. If you would like to support the show and get an ad-free podcast and get access to this glorious bus joke, Cannot uh, praise the bus joke highly enough, um, please go to Slate.com slash ABC plus. I'm so glad you guys um, can come talk to me today of all days um, about this particular book. We're going to discuss What Happened uh, by Hillary Clinton, uh, the campaign memoir about uh, the 2016 presidential campaign. Um, and we are doing it just as news is breaking that Robert Mueller has invited Trump's um, former campaign manager, Paul Manafort. So I hope someone is hard at work on a sequel called What is Happening or What Will Happen. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it's hard to even sort of uh, pierce through the cloud of expectations and feelings around a figure like Hillary Clinton and an artifact like this book about one of the wildest and strangest turns in American history. Um, So I'm not sure – Maybe can we just talk about our feelings for a second? (laughs) (laughs) Just as all of this is happening. Um, I'm so glad you suggested that. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, um, okay, I have to I have a confession. So I feel like you guys are going to be much more intellectually rigorous than I am going to be about this book. I feel like I've gone totally soft. I cried reading this book several times. Um and I think part of it had to do with reading it a year after almost a year exactly after the the events leading up to the election and the election itself. Um and I felt that I was processing these events along with with Hillary Clinton. Um this book is many things which I'm I'm sure we're going to talk about them. It, it's a campaign memoir. It also struck me that it's a kind of grief memoir, which is something I've written yeah. that there's a kind of um, memorializing and elegizing of her own experience that that is taking place, and of our experience, honestly, that is taking place. This is a book about mourning, and in fact, she uses the word mourning in one section. Um, it's mourning, a, 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 you know, a, an America that never got to be, and her presidential bid that never got to be. Um, so, you know, I have many, many feelings. I think there's many books in here. There's also some kind of trite recitation, but there's also a whole book about. Um, Russia and what's happened, and you know Russia's interference in the election, and in any case, in places I was totally bored and skimming, and in other places I was, you know, vividly reliving um, a whole set of very, very complicated feelings of loss and sorrow and um, and fear. I don't know. That's what I, yeah. that's what happened to me.
0: I confess, I also cried. <laughs> I was surprised. I was surprised to cry. Yeah, Because she's
2: not the most rousing writer, but I was crying nonetheless.
1: Well, right, and she's not the most rousing writer, but she's doing something different than I think we've seen her do in prose or, for the most part, campaigning before, right? There's just a frankness and a willingness to be puzzled um, out loud that is appealing and I think was generally missing from her as a candidate or a public figure, right?
2: Yeah, Totally. Totally, which we should talk about more, all of those things. I mean, that's one of the things I really – I don't know about you guys, but I thought – I read a bunch of the reviews last night and I thought Michelle Goldberg's in Slate was the best review I read because so many of the reviews I thought actually really missed what was going on in this book and sort of complained that she was saying on the one hand this, on the one hand that, on the one hand it was my fault, on the one hand it wasn't. And I actually thought, no, she's <laughs> she's just trying to be nuanced. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, you know, she's right.
2: actually trying to be nuanced, which is something that no one is permitting in the in the dialogue in the culture today, which is a whole other thread we can, we can pull here. But I got so frustrated on her behalf. That was part of the emotion, too, was not just the reception to her campaign. But then in this book, as you say, Emily, I felt she was trying to be more frank. There are moments where I thought she was not really trying to be frank or she was still occluding or kind of perhaps it's that she's not a super introspective person and there are aspects of her life and career she doesn't want to look very
1: closely and at. And what specifically did you feel that way about?
2: I felt that way when she talks about Bill and the history of allegations of, you know, sexual harassment about Bill, especially in the context, obviously, that we're living through right now. I felt like she she just said, oh, those things were litigated before. And you think, well, just because they're litigated doesn't mean they were resolved correctly. You know, she really doesn't want to look at that. Now, how, how would she look at it in a text like this is another question. But it's an important question. And it's part of why I think there's a certain contingent of um, women in particular who didn't vote for her. I think some of that had to do with Bill. And it's very interesting to be talking about the book in the light of all the Weinstein allegations, because I think we do have to think back to that history with Bill Clinton. And there are questions. There, I don't have answers, but I have questions still. So that part I found somewhat unsatisfying, to say the least. And then, I don't know, there were a couple other moments, maybe when she was talking about the very end of her campaign and the media going after her for not talking about the economy, there I felt like she sort of fudged it. She was like, but we were talking about the economy, but it's true. We did run all these ads about Trump, so maybe we did the wrong thing. I felt like she just wasn't clear with herself yet about what had happened there. And there was one other spot, but I can't remember now. I don't know. Did you, well, did you have that the thing film? that
1: struck me was she no. very quickly deals with her Goldman Sachs speech. Yes, yes, yes. That was like, the other like, one. She knows right. That was bad optics, but she right. doesn't delve into – there isn't like – any sort of detailed mea culpa on that point, which, given exactly. how alienating it was to voters, seems like a telling omission, right?
2: Exactly. That was the third one. In fact, it's the first one in the first spot of those in the book. And exactly. She goes over it very quickly and she's like, I just didn't realize. And you think, well, did you re-? then you need to think about what it means that you're the kind of person that didn't realize that it would be worth your thinking about that. And how did you
1: surround yourself with people who right. let you right. not think right. clearly about that right. and the implications right. it was going right. to have? Um Yes, I agree with all of that, and I think we should talk more especially about the um, allegations surrounding Bill Clinton, which I have strong feelings about revisiting, but my primary response to this book right now is to read it through the lens of feeling like a defender of Hillary Clinton's more than I have felt previously, I think. And part of it, of course, is like you see her through this, like, receding lens of history that she lost. But part of it is just um, the feelings about her candidacy as a woman right now, right? I mean, it's it's in this moment in history, for me as a feminist, impossible not to sympathize with her and feel like she um, – there was something, I think, inevitable about the idea that the first woman who ran for president as a major party candidate would come – to power through her husband or through some family member, even though she's incredibly accomplished in her own right, and then that all of that baggage would really help destroy her. Um, and then just like the, you know, the sort of, um, a drama in a terrible way of her matchup with Donald Trump, and how I think, in part because of the Bill Clinton allegations, she wasn't perfectly positioned to counter him. And exactly. as she says in the book, she was running a campaign for the last election. Um, and I think, like, I don't blame her for that. I don't think anyone really foresaw that. But, you know, it did, it did undo her.
2: It's so true. And I think I I absolutely agree that as a feminist, as a woman, but, you know, I think part of what this book does and part of why I'm so frustrated, well, more than frustrated, I'm I'm intellectually disappointed. Frustrated is an emotional response, which I have, but I'm also intellectually disappointed in the reception because I think that it, it in many ways, and it made me empathize with her more as a candidate, because in many ways, I thought she is trying to get stuff down in the book that she wasn't able to totally put across as a candidate. And she is, I love, we should talk about how mean she gets and kind of spicy. I like the spicy <laughs> Clinton moments. Yeah. Um, and I was, but you know, you ha- I, I don't know about you, but I had this very strong, very palpable feeling that's all the stronger for, you know, being juxtaposed with the constant, you know, news alu- alerts we're getting about Trump and his tweets, but I had this very strong sense of her incredible dedication to governing and how much knowledge she has. I mean, people complained that this book was like wonky, but I was I was like, well, that's actually one of its virtues. She's she's still trying to govern, you know, she's still trying to like kind of sit from you know, sit in her home and write this book and say, like, I know he won, but like here are some things we really need to think about. And I found the Russia section incredibly powerful in that regard, that she had spent a lot of time thinking about it, synthesizing it, and saying, here's what we really, really need to do for the next election. This is a break of the glass moment. And very few reviewers even talked about it. They just complained that this book wasn't newsy or gossipy enough. And I thought she's trying to, you know, write about a couple crises that are facing the country. Anyway, so that was part of my response was like, you, you kind of feel her wonky readiness to really govern in comparison to Trump's total non-readiness to even appoint people.
1: I wonder if we have an advantage talking about this book, even like whatever it is, a month or two after publication versus the moment it hit, yeah. where reviewers were and maybe there's just something also about, like, trying to quickly digest a memoir like this, which is inherently political and partisan. Um, and maybe the people who were tapped to review it were so much a part of the, that political um, landscape. I wonder, I mean, I feel like a book like this, in some ways, you can't really tell how good it is until it has stood the test of time or not. Because right. I agree with you. I think that Russia section is a really strong... Um, you know, as you said, synthesis of what we know right now and why it matters. And we may look back on it as more of that, um, you know, as time passes and we see how prescient it was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I would also just agree that one of the strengths of this book is it's so beautifully synthesized. Like, it does not sort of present information or scoops that we didn't know. And even tonally, like, this is the Hillary, I thought, that was very familiar from the campaign trail and from her decades in the public eye. Like, this was not a surprising person to spend time with on the page. Like, we know Hillary at this point, And it was familiar. Um But you know, she's, she is such an admirable woman, and this is such a sort of lucid and cogent summary of the issues, and she knows so much, um, that it just, you know, it is kind of like this shining alternative that's very, like, gutting to read, um, because she does come across as so capable and qualified. Um, but the other interesting Thing for me, I actually listened to it in in an audiobook format, um, and I don't normally listen to audiobooks, so it was like it was pretty intimate and moving to have her voice actually reading her words oh, in my it. head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought about yeah. listening to it. I'm glad you did. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I wrote a piece about it um, called oh, Hillary good. in my head. And oh. <laughs> basically um, what was so strange about it is you kind of, you're listening um, with part of your attention and sometimes you sort of mistake your own train of consciousness for like this woman's voice speaking um, and you get confused about who is thinking or saying what. And what was so surprising to me about this experience is I realized like the things that Hillary, that keeps her up at night, that she's weighing and wondering and thinking and sort of being exasperated and fearful about are the things that like women at large or in general have been angsting about for the past year. And like she's such a good sort of spokeswoman and avatar for all of us in this moment. Um, I just found that very moving and sort of the experience of listening to her voice articulate her own words um, was sort of brought that home for me.
2: You really put your finger on an aspect of the book that I think is part of its power, which is precisely that sense of she's she's thinking these thoughts and she's kind of, you know, she's almost like the really informed person thinking these thoughts. And I have these thoughts in a more inchoate way, like the incredible concern about Russia Um you know, one section I thought just to add to what you're saying, Katie, is that the, that the end where she tries where she talks about giving this speech in 1994 at UT Austin. Do you remember, Do you guys remember this where she invo- invokes Lee Atwater's vision of America, you know, kind of like yeah. bringing people together. And she talks about how she gets like, you know, torn apart in the press for being like too earnest and wishy-washy, you know, not wishy-washy, um, like gauzy and, you know, just meaninglessly like hopeful, like let's all bond, you know. And then she talks about this need for empathy right now. And she has a section that, again, a couple of reviewers were really critical of that I thought was really trying to get at something essential to America right now, which is the question of how do you empathize with people who we feel have elected someone who is, you know, dangerously incompetent at best and perhaps malignantly, you know, um, bad for the country at, at worst. Um and she has this I thought this meditation that she had at the end about the the need for empathy, the desire, the the importance of trying to build some kind of coalition out of this incredibly divisive moment that she handled that really well. And that it's true and it's very hard to do. And I thought she didn't pull her punches. You know, she says, I do find the people who are the racists voting for Trump. I do. I still find them deplorable. They are deplorable. Mm-hmm. But we have to try to figure out what has caused the situation to move forward? And I just thought that was what made me feel like, ugh, I wish she were president. <laughs> because, you know, as different as I might feel on certain policy positions and whatever reservations I may have about certain aspects of her as a politician, I thought that is a really profound question facing the nation. And, and I just feel like it's soft and it's not newsy and gossipy. So yes, you know, kind of news, political junkie reporters are, are ignoring that part, but it actually seems to me to be the profound question facing us right now. I
1: agree, although I didn't... I don't think there's anything she could write that would convince me that she would be the president who would be able it's to true. get on, and, and <laughs> That's probably that's true. Like, it's only partly yeah. her fault, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, there, there are some ways in which I think she's responsible for that. But a lot of it is yeah. just like the role she plays, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that struck me, um, she ends the book with this quite beautiful speech from Um, Wesleyan's commencement in which the student speaker, right, uses the idea of like a flawed emerald or a flawed jewel to celebrate the the flaws of, you know, those students who are graduating and sort of women everywhere. And there's something very um, lovely about Hillary reclaiming that word because Mm -hmm. it is the word that we've all used forever for her. Um, You know, at the same time, I think one of the sort of poignant aspects of this book to me was that you're right, Megan, about how much of a policy wonk she seems in a way that is attractive right now. It is also true that those, that strength kind of turned into a weakness, right? In the sense that, and she says this in the book explicitly, like, I just couldn't imagine that people were going to hold against me, you know, the Clinton Foundation or the Mm -hmm. Goldman Sachs speeches because, I've been a public servant for so long. How could anyone misinterpret my stance on that? How could anyone not give me credit for my record? And like, I I see why she would feel that way, but it was such a blind spot.
2: Totally. Uh, Right?
1: And so that was something that like hit me in waves while I was reading that this person who is admirable in many ways and like, yes, got screwed, also like had this blind spot that, you know, if you think she should have been elected, it costs the country dearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, I think, also brings me back to Bill Clinton and his alleged transgressions, because I don't think there's any way in this moment, you know, post Weinstein and Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes, and indeed Donald Trump, that we can look back at Clinton's record of Bill Clinton's record of being accused of harassment and assault by a, by a, a you know, number of women and feel the way, you know, there's no way that, like, the Gloria Steinem dismissal of those accusations would stand now. I don't think that Bill Clinton would have been elected nor probably should have been elected. And there's no way that Hillary Clinton can really grapple with any of that publicly. I don't know if she can do it privately. It's just not possible. And so there is this, like, essential paradox in this feminist you know, path-breaking figure being hamstrung on that point. Did you guys feel some of that, or do you
2: disagree? A oh, 100%. And actually, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on is that I feel like as I'm talking, I'm also talking about the Hillary I wish that was. Do you know what totally, I mean? Like, right? I, feel, I feel like I had a very—this book is so non-novelistic, as I said. It's it's not that beautiful—it's not very well-written. It's, it's, you know, it's competent, and she she synthesizes information well. It's not a well-written book, partly because— um, in in the sense that it's not introspective. She's not really able to bring language, find language for certain kind of really confusing inward experiences. Um, mm-hmm. And she's often just like, I'm confused. Why do people hate me? Which there is a mystery to it, but there's also some answers to it. And I think that a lot of them have to do with what you were just talking about, Emily. Um, and for me, you know, my experience of reading the book was of these waves of identification with her, these waves of feeling like, yes, she should be president. She would be like, bringing us all where we need to go. And then these waves of being kind of annoyed at her on the page and also thinking, wow, you have a huge blind spot even here and you're not pausing to just stop and look and thinking, you know, that's that's part of Hillary, too. Right. Um, These things I can't I can't I can't untangle the Hillary's that I'm finding in the book. They're they're tangled together. And that's why she's such a divisive – that's one of the reasons she's such a divisive figure. And there's something about her particular qualities. Um, but I think that in particular, you know, the silence around um, the allegations against Bill and the fact that she stood beside him um, and the fact that in this book, you know, she, she doesn't wrestle with it because she can't and publicly, as you said. That's – you know, there's some huge stumbling block there, right? It's almost novelistic, in some way, yeah. so uh, and I think it's yeah. I think it's novel, and I think it's a novelistic stumbling block that is still facing us as we try to talk. Unfortunately, it's still part of the you know, it's making it hard for us to have a national conversation because people are going after Trump for sexual assault, but it's it's hard to do that as a liberal. I think if you're not also willing to talk about Bill Clinton and at least ask
0: the questions and say, have we fully answered them? Yeah, I mean it's interesting too because I think the book sort of like gestures that this kind of like. I don't know. There's a sense of mystery around Hillary Clinton that I'm not sure is warranted. I think, in many ways, what you're saying is absolutely right, and there are things that are kept secret, and things that, like, she could probe more. And there's, you know, interior worlds that could be sort of um, more clearly drawn or communicated to us. But on the other hand, like, this book is full of her telling us, like, people come to her and say, but why are you really running for president? Yeah. Like, what is that secret? Like, unlock that, like, mystery of your character that, like, shows, like, you know, this, like, demon that you really are, this ambitious woman, or or even, you know, um, who are you really? This This, like, sense that she's inauthentic. And at a certain point reading the book, I started to feel, because I often also had thought, oh, maybe she is not the most sort of naturally authentic or forthcoming figure. Um, but at a certain point, I started to just think, you know, what you see is what you get from this woman. Like she, maybe she doesn't have that much insight into her own internal workings. But maybe she just is this kind of studious, wonky Hermione <laughs> Um I don't know, and I just—I was also getting exasperated on her behalf at like this need to sort of like penetrate the mystery of Hillary Clinton, as if like there is a mystery necessarily. I think
2: I—I I, I think I agree. Um, with with just two little things, I would add, which is what I was trying really inarticulately to say just now. But I think that was my impression too. I thought, oh, she just is this—you know, this is who she is. She's just sort of. Slightly humorless, but (laughs) sweet and earnest and like the story, a very illuminating moment, not to talk about politics for a moment. For me, a very illuminating kind of memoir moment was when she talked about uh, Chelsea having invented this game about which is the funniest uh, dinosaur which is the friendliest friendliest, which is the friendliest dinosaur and she's like and i had to remind her that all dinosaurs were not friendly and i thought really did you and i was like that's part of why people don't like hillary clinton separate from everything else right i actually found it sort of winning and i was like i understand being that woman Um, (laughs) but but the two little things i was going to add was I think she gives herself a pass when she should mm. often know better, right? What, going back to Emily's point, you know, what did it cost the country? Like she, she often gave herself a pass politically because she was like, but my intentions are good. And she was so frustrated. And Obama has some of this too, I think. She was so frustrated with the performativity of politics that she, you know, and the, you know, the kind of game playing and the appearance mongering that she just gave herself a pass because she was like, well, I know I'm doing – you know, "and if, if we buy her version, Right.
0: And there's still a flaw there. Yeah, exactly. There's still a flaw there. Exactly.
2: Even even if it's even if it's the best version of Hillary, there's still a flaw <laughs> to go back to the metaphor then. And then the other thing is I do think the stuff with with Bill Clinton is a big the more I've thought about it the more I've thought that is this distorting it's like oil in the water. It's just this like distorting bubble that's like shaping everything around it for for many people without us necessarily even knowing. But of course, the distaste for her started before then, you know, with the people going after her for not taking Clinton as a last name. And, and I do well, think... Well,
1: not right. I mean, I actually did a piece last year where I did a bunch of reading back into her early days, like when she was the first lady of Arkansas and actually before that, when Bill Clinton was campaigning for governor. And you can see why she was so frustrated with the press. She was this, you know, like kind of classic early second wave feminist in the South, not adjusting with utter smoothness to this new environment. and But she just got reamed, like essentially for no reason. There was so much suspicion. And when you've had an early experience like that with the media, no wonder your guard goes up. And it sort of never came down. But the problem with that is that then the media like is basically gonna, uh, you know, attack you and make you pay for that guardedness, like, from thenceforth. And, and there's, like, an essential struggle there that, in the end, hurt more, her more than, like, it hurt the press. And again, like, there's something, you can see it's rational, but it was, it was a really, uh, it's just, it was, it's, uh, it's not helped her.
2: Do you think, Emily, that if she had been, say, running, you know, First Lady, if Bill had been running in New York or Connecticut or somewhere that didn't have such kind of hidebound ideas, we hope, somewhat, but, you know, New England being a little different from the South, um, do you think maybe there would be a totally different trajectory for Hillary?
1: I mean, that's possible, but I also think it was of the era, of the yeah. age, yeah. right? Like, it's more to do with the time than yeah. the place. That makes um, sense. And that this is where, to me, the idea that, like, she's a first-generation figure instead of, like, a Moses rather than a Joshua is so— I, I come back mm-hmm. to this always and <laughs> thinking mm-hmm. about her because she had to both come to into the public view— in this earlier time, where the expectations for women and, and you know, political spouses and families were so different. And now she has to, like, be this other person. And I think that is just really tough to pull off. It's tough in terms of her, like, feminism, but it's it also has all these policy implications. You know, there's... I'm writing about criminal justice reform right now, so I was really interested in a few pages where she talks about the crime bill of 1994 that Bill Clinton signed. And she's like, concedes that it wasn't perfect, you know, but she calls it, like, a tough compromise, even if it was flawed. And, like, that was a terrible bill. Oh, that was <laughs> the other one I was going to bring up. Yeah, I was just yeah, – yeah, it was a
2: horrible part of the – yeah, go ahead, sorry.
1: Yeah, it's just not – I mean, you, whatever. Like, it's good that she did some, you know, talking to Black Lives Matter activists during the campaign it's not like she hasn't moved at all on that issue, but she is stuck defending this, like, bad set of policy choices that Democrats made in the 90s. And, you know, Obama, who wasn't like, around then, didn't have to do that. And anyway, that's, I just think that there's, it's both true about the fact that, you know, she got frustrated about how she didn't want to sit around baking cookies and giving teas, as she put it, and like, she didn't change her name, or honestly like, change her hair. I mean, that was like a huge I remember that
0: Mm
1: -hmm. like the glasses and the hair like she just the headbands she looked like a law school graduate Um, not (laughs) like you know a sort of well clothed spouse anyway but it's like dual there's like the part where you really sympathize with her as a woman and then the part where you're like oh my god I cannot believe we're re litigating like the 1994 crime bill.
2: There's something so poignant. I think. I think that's part of why I responded emotionally to the book because it was. As, it was sort of like living, you know, a life that I might have had if I were, you know, thirty-five years older or whatever, and been impossible. You know, it's like I think I could so identify with how certain things happened to her, even though I was also frustrated with her. But it strikes me that, and I, I wonder what you guys think, like reading the book and seeing, you know, some of the information she pulls together about the, the disinformation, the misinformation that was flooding Twitter and Facebook and the kinds of ads, you know, Hillary Clinton has Parkinson's, The you know, the kind of stuff that was flooding Hillary the Clinton internet. Hillary
1: Clinton a sex ring Right, exactly, right, <laughs> Parkinson's
2: being the least of it. But I remember I would look at Breitbart pretty much every day and I just right. I remember seeing some of this stuff and they would find these horrible photos of her and obviously I, th- I think also like mark them up to make them look worse. I just – there's something so canny about the, Ru- the Russian I, – I, I'm just – I'm actually kind of reeling from reading this book right now also as – I also just read the long Julian Assange profile in The New Yorker and obviously everything coming out with Mueller. Like I'm just – I'm kind of amazed by how almost novelistic <laughs> the, the Russian <laughs> information war is, right? Like how much they're able to like take these cracks in her character and these – aspects of American cultural, um, the American culture wars, and just like feed the beast, right, in this profound way. And I don't know, I'm just wondering what, I mean, Emily, you know a lot about this, and also Katie, what your response is.
1: She is demonized so successfully, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it worked during the campaign, it continues to have a lot of purchase in right-wing media. And you look at it, and As a political matter, you can kind of coldly analyze, like, the work that it's doing for, you know, Trump supporters or, um, you know, just the conservative movement more broadly in America. Like, she continues to sort of pay off as a way of uh, uh, personifying everything that's alienating about, like, the liberal elite or the supposedly corrupt Democratic Party. (laughs) So, like, you can look at it in the abstract and then you think like my god what would it be like to be that be person? Her. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and and that is a value of this book that it makes us it forces us to think about that right yeah.
2: yeah yeah right it's really wild like she's just such she's this cultural shibboleth you know like she's become yeah. and it's funny because i was you know some tweet was going around which was a you know russia misinformation you know was a what do you call it? Propaganda. But it was about it was basically a tweet implying that liberals had invaded football stadiums and were demanding gluten free sandwiches. <laughs> and I was like, how do they know this about us? But sort of the same thing I felt reading this book. I was like, how do they know we're fighting about like gluten free food at football stadiums and like that Hillary Clinton's headbands like still matter to us in some way. Right. There's like history of 90- I don't know. I don't know. It's just it was yeah. very interesting to me. Also, having watched the Putin documentary that Oliver Stone made where Putin tries this whole like propaganda scene where he um, has like Stone come in and he's like, I'm talking to all my command. Did you guys see this? He's like, I'm talking to my commanders in these place. And it's so awkward and obvious and bad. Like as propaganda, it's such a like 1962 failure. Do you know what I mean? It's just so obvious. And then this is so sophisticated. And I just – I don't know. I'm still – thinking about that in a way and thinking about what as, as you say I'm like, like what it means for her like to live in this it's just she's not only reckoning with losing the election she's reckoning with like being this this figure sorry I'm
1: well literally becoming the boogeyman yeah right? yeah
0: yeah. yeah, And it's so crazy, too, because, like, we're talking about sort of, like, the novelistic aspects of her character. Like, she writes or, she, yeah, she says, I've always had this self-confidence at one point And you're like, of course, because you are the mythic hero who has good intentions and lots of confidence and a blind spot. And you're about to fall. And then you don't even reckon with the fact, like, on the other side of this equation is Trump, who is not, like, a real person at all. Like, this is an actual – I mean, yes, he's a real person. Right. right. He exists. (laughs) But, like, he is a boogeyman and complete caricature. Uh, It's just, it is, it's completely wild. Right. I don't uh, have anything smart to say about that. I just agree. I
2: think it's important to remember how wild it is. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, and it continues to be wild. right? I mean, we're taping this week as these Mueller indictments of Manafort and Rick Gates, his associate, come down. And meanwhile, Trump with lots of support from, you know, Fox and actually also the Wall Street Journal is calling for a renewed investigation into Hillary Clinton
2: Mm -hmm. and her Mm -hmm. sins.
1: And, like, in fact, you know, one of the committees in Congress is actually taking that up. I mean, it's it's, It's all of the issues in this book are, like shockingly relevant right this second. And it's not, the the 2016 election should be receding. You know, it it should be the past, but it does not feel like the past yet.
2: And it's weird that it's almost a year exactly after. I mean, Emily, as you were pointing out, Nate Silver tweeted the other day, it was a year ago that James Comey, you know, released the information that they were looking into more of her emails. And uh, Clinton tweeted something like, oh, is it that day or something, right? Right, Uh, which I thought
1: was the perfect response. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Right, oh, really, like very, um, you know, like pointed, but also uh, at the same time, not too much, like no cap no yeah. exclamation yeah. points, yeah. just kind of, yeah. yeah, what can you say?
2: On this front, you know, one thing that she talks about in the book, which I actually found really gutting, um, was the fact that, you know, she really did worry that maybe they were going to come after her to lock yeah. her up, right? I mean, just to come wow. back to this, and which they done are done, still. Negative. I know, that's what, what I'm saying. Yet. Like, that's why I'm bringing it up now. Like, and then you see yeah. this committee and we're still in the news talking about these, like, oh, the uranium and the, I don't know. I just, I, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and then again, like there's this abstract principle of what it would mean for our democracy to actually, you know, try to prosecute um, the loser in an election like that has a lot of um, scary overtones. And then there's this personal aspect of it, like this particular woman is facing this kind of scrutiny.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, also, just to get back to that tweet, there is a sort of and I guess this is shifting gears a little bit, there is a kind of dry humor in the book that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And I know, Megan, you mentioned that she gets a little mean sometimes. <laughs> I um, see. Which is, yeah, yeah, a little saucy, a little little um, squirrel ninja sriracha yeah. thrown in the book. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, I wonder if we could just uh, talk about that a bit. Um, it seems like she she is not um particularly fond of Bernie in this book um or Biden um no. no it's true and Comey certainly well, Comey, I kind of I'm with her hundred percent on yeah, Comey. I yeah. mean, I just am like she says
2: this thing about how I mean, because it seems like Comey released that information because he worried, and Emily, you would know more about this than I do, but it seems like he released he went public with this. Kind of non-information about her emails because he was worried someone was leaking it to Giuliani and other people, and there was pressure yeah, on him. Yeah, it was right?
1: a huge blunder. And you know, a huge this is one thing that Rod Rosenstein, Trump's deputy right. attorney general, is correct about.
2: Right. And and I thought she was totally correct. She was basically like he needed to have more character. <laughs> to just do what was right rather than do what, you know, sort of protect himself. Um,
1: Right, and also Comey was breaking the rules of the Justice Department and publicly discussing an investigation that had not led to an indictment.
2: Yeah, so I thought she was totally, I thought that part, I loved her kind of firmness and fierceness. I loved it in the Russia section when she was like, you guys are talking about this, but this is what we need to talk about. One, two, three, four. Um, I loved it when she says, I still think these people are deplorable. I'm talking about the racists, Mm -hmm. not the people who are, you know, desperately trying to figure out, you know, how to live. She says, but even them, the best we could say is like that they're permitting this racist to be president. And I thought that was like very mm-hmm. firm and correct. Um, So I, mm-hmm. I love those moments. It rem- she quoted one thing that reminded me she was like this sometimes on the campaign trail too, which was when she um, fired at uh, Trump during one of the debates that like, because he was like, oh, Putin likes me, likes me more than her. And she's like, yeah, because he wants a puppet as president, you know, yeah. and, and that I thought that that's a good mode for her. And I wish we had seen more of that mm-hmm. from her. On the campaign, though we did see some, and I thought that was were some of her best moments. And I thought in the book it, it mostly works really
0: well.
1: Katie, were there other moments like that that you appreciated?
0: Um, I liked when she sort of, um, she, I'm going to use her word, shivved Jason Chaffetz <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought you were rinse. <laughs> Um Apparently, he took a. Oh, she also has this sort of delightful grandmotherly. Um, per- Plexity at selfies, and so she—it's oh, yeah. kind of a running motif.
2: Like, <laughs> <So laughs> so so I don't get the selfies. She's <laughs> such a curmudgeon. She like she, yeah. she she stops to take a dig at a woman who asked for a selfie. This is why I was like, oh, people get annoyed at her. Like, she takes this weird dig at the woman who wanted a selfie with her while she was voting. I was like, really? You have to take a <laughs> right. dig at that woman now? <laughs>
1: well, so can yeah. you imagine? I mean, it must, it must be exhausting. so it must irritating, be exhausting. right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, everywhere you go, even in like, can you imagine? I and mean, that's another moment where you just think. Oh my god, being Hillary Clinton would be so terrible. Yeah. But
2: what do you guys think about the Ber- I have two questions. Where she she's tough on Bernie as you were saying Katie and on the media. And I think we should definitely talk about the media, but what about Bernie? What what did you guys think about her her Bernie assessment?
1: I mean, I feel like you know, I don't again, like so as a just Writer of a memoir. I feel like she is entitled to be pissed off because there was a way in which, you know, Bernie got a lot of traction from promises that he didn't have a realistic way of fulfilling and that like Tracy Flick, Ernest, Hillary Clinton would never have done such a thing. And then it turned out that like that was probably a miscalculation on her part. Um,
2: And it turned out that Bernie then later adopted her positions. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Both ways.
1: (laughs) So I understand her frustration about that. And I was like willing to let her vent. I mean, I think if you're talking about the future of the Democratic Party and like bringing the various strands of the coalition together, it's like it wasn't super helpful. But I don't feel like I have to read it through that lens.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, what I appreciated about her assessment of Bernie was that she kind of wove it into that section about gender politics in a way that was kind of enlightening to me. Just like the idea that a woman can't really get away with standing on a soapbox and like pronouncing grand dreams for the future. Like often women feel like they need to sort of get projects done and have feasible outlines and lots of notes and homework done. And it just um, that that rang true to me. I'm not sure if that's, you know, accurate, but it, it did resonate with me. And I did feel that she kind of had a handle on how gender politics played out uh, vis-a-vis her and Bernie.
2: It's reminding me that routinely during the primaries, I used to <laughs> used to look at Bernie and try to give him a gender makeover and imagine he was a woman <laughs> and be like, would this woman be like so popular, right? If she kind of looked this way and talked this way and had these great, you know, would, would she have gotten to this place as socialism? socialist? Yeah, or no. yeah, no. 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 <laughs> right. But you both are so close, you know, I was really sitting out in, in the 2008 election. I had the wonderful privilege of writing about politics with you, Emily. Um, in the, in the which double, was in the, so fun. which was so fun. And I have to say, during this election, I was desperately wanting to write about politics, but I'm desperately trying to finish a book that's overdue. So I sat it out, but I, you both were pretty close to, you know, the media coverage, decisions about the media. I don't know. I mean, from the outside, it did feel like the media I felt and I still feel reading the reviews of this that they were not capturing some of the full story about her. And certainly the litigating the emails constantly on the New York Times front page felt like real overplay. And I thought her I thought her discussion of false equivalence was reasonable. She talks about, you know, these like false comparisons between like Trump did the Trump Foundation did this and the Clinton Foundation did this. But I wonder what you think, because I also saw at times she was it was, again, the blind spot that she wasn't able to see things she was doing that were contributing to some of that uh, coverage. But I wonder what you both think, since you were so close to the
1: action. I mean, I have two feelings. I basically agree with you, and she has some pretty good numbers to back up her points about false equivalency. You know, I think part of it is that the email story was a scoop for The New York Times, and when it's your scoop, you play it up. But when The New York Times plays up, uh, set of facts like that, that means that so do all the cable news shows. There's like a way in which that, um, legitimates a, a lot of coverage. So, I mean, I think that that is like a fair criticism to, to Levy. I also think it's impossible to not, rem- and I, and I think she, like, this is just part of the picture. I'm not arguing with her. I think that most of the media assumed she was going to win. And so yeah. the tough, evaluations of her and the laser-like focus was all within the framework of, like, this is our future president, and we are entitled to evaluate her. Um, you know, in fact, like, it's our duty to be as um, stringent and rigorous as possible with her. And then when that turns out to be wrong, and then the media has to... Um, or has to or should grapple with the fact that, like its laser-like focus, contributed to that being wrong. That's like scrambles the whole set of assumptions that I think went yeah. into a lot of the coverage. And yeah. I should say I have no inside knowledge about this at the yeah. So I was yeah. not part of the You're newsroom decisions about this at all. I'm yeah. really just talking as an observer.
2: Do you think too? I mean, that we all just didn't understand how big the fake news propaganda. Push was that you know the Times was doing this kind of in a vacuum of not knowing how much had shifted in terms of like the power of Breitbart and infowars and the fact that Russia was feeding you know propaganda to yeah and I think that the
1: power of Breitbart was starting to be clear right like the things that were circulating we could see but the fact that there were all these you know Russian paid-for or unpaid campaigns going on on Facebook and Twitter that were, like, driven by bots and driven by, you know, quite canny Russian interventions and creation, but also, like, just dissemination of memes. We didn't know that, I do think, like, because that then raises questions about foreign interference and, like, you know, uh, things that are not like a, a mechanism for interfering with the election that is like anti-American patriotism. I yeah. think that would have changed yeah. the coverage. Yeah, it yeah. yeah. seems like
0: it would have had yeah. to. But Katie, what yeah, do you think? Yeah, I think that's all really smart. I mean, my... Biggest, I, I think it's both, um, Hillary's critique and, and Emily, what you had said is very compelling. I think we should have been in emergency mode. Like the minute mm-hmm. Trump started to rise when, when that baleful star started to rise, mm-hmm. like we should have realized that this was a real possibility. And just, you know, after he was elected, there were the marches, there were these outpourings. Everyone kind of, again, they flipped into crisis. Uh, crisis mode, and we should have done that far earlier. Um, and I think, you know, motivated reasoning in politics and and public life has been a thing for a while. But I, I'm I'm still unclear on like what exactly allowed everyone to just sort of like fall to the, you know, just flatter their basest urges. Like, why did we suddenly just decide that it was okay to? abandon critical thinking and uh, and I'm talking mostly about the people who v- believed fake news or disseminated fake news. Um, I mean is it that hard to tell it's fake? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know much about this but Oh, I think it's it just... that hard.
1: And I mean I also think okay. that people's... And, and now I'm, I'm wildly generalizing, generalizing from like you know, a set of conversations I've had since the election and doing some reporting with Trump supporters but I think there is a way in which the we were the country's been primed for this for years right. by primarily Fox and then right. Breitbart and right. um, Infowars et cetera are kind of piling on. But the sense that like you don't know, you can't trust inf- it where information is coming from. The mainstream media is tainted and um, corrupt. Um, I mean, I've had several people say to me since the election. Um, can you, oh, can you send me that story you've written because, like, then I'll know that it's trustworthy because I Uh. know you and you wrote that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is something, like, very primitive and kind of village-like about that idea, right? I can only trust the source of information because I've had a conversation with you and, like, I think that you will tell the truth, but, like, the rest of what, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times prints, I'm not going to trust because, like, I've been told... I think that is running pretty wide and deep in parts of the American electorate right now. And
2: it's, it's you know, I've been talking, to we have extended family members who, um, you know, who subscribe to The New York Times for years and have now told us, you know, The New York Times prints fake news and have canceled their subscription. And it's, these are, you know, people who have, are, you know, um, smart and thoughtful. And it's very hard for me to understand because I think, how can you possibly think that? Um but on the other hand, you know, there was one Trump story. Do you guys remember the story, which was like a deeply satisfying story if you were a liberal who hated Trump? But it was a, I thought, a very problematic story. I actually taught it in my nonfiction writing class. Um, do you remember the story about Trump patting around in his bathrobe? Yes. With the oh, yeah, the lights out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it was like one. so like the delicious. Of the White House, right? It was yeah. such a delicious story to read. But I thought it was like, I thought it was a dangerous story for them to have published because every. Uh, verb and adjective was basically you know putting the foot on the gas pedal right it was it was not strictly speaking objective right it was this way of every every verb kind of you know, it just it was novelist. It was wonderful. It was it was kind of right, but perfectly like, done for what it was. But, if, of,
1: yes. right,
2: but it was early on. And if you're like one of these people who were undecided, maybe didn't vote for Trump, but also kind of thought, oh, the liberal elites are, you know, I don't like how they're rushing to judgment and we should wait and see, which I think there was a large contingent of people who sat out the election who are kind of like, well, let's wait and see. And I think when The Times did stuff like that, um, having heard from some of them, I think that really alienated them. But it's it's very hard for me to understand. It's interesting that you've been talking to um, people and you see it firsthand. Because I'm kind of with Katie. I'm like, put on your critical thinking caps. <laughs> but 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 then on the other hand, I listen. I'm trying to just listen. You know, I'm trying to listen and and learn more about why people have come to this place of thinking everything is fake.
1: Can I change the subject slightly? Because there's one other theme of this book that I'm dying to hear what you guys think about. Um, and that's the, the way in which Hillary over and over again, comes back to the idea that like, you just have to keep going. Oh yeah. I mean, almost every quote that she starts a new chapter or section with has something about like, you just have to keep going and she ends on that idea. And I, again, I find it like very admirable and poignant at this point, but also like just, I don't know. There's also something, I don't know if it's that I don't. I, I do believe her. I, she ends with this impassioned cry to her supporters not to give up and to stay involved in politics and, like, from her point of view, you know, rescue the country. But there is just also something so earnest about it. Like, it it didn't work, the idea of just keeping going.
2: That's really interesting. What do you yeah. think,
0: Katie? I don't know. I'm just, I'm flashing back. There's a moment in the book where she says that um, one thing that she appreciates Appreciates about the Secret Service is they don't get mad at her when she attempts to be a backseat driver. (laughs) And (laughs) I just, I guess (laughs) what I would hope from Hillary Clinton in the future is that she will be our greatest backseat driver and she will somehow make her, her presence felt. I mean, I know that her political career, as she says in the book, is over and she's not going to try to hold public office in the future and she'll maybe work behind the scenes. I think temperamentally, she's not going to be able to stop. Like, I just don't think that that's in her character. I mean, who knows? But, um, I think maybe these slogans, you know, onward together, keep going, all this persistent stuff. This is kind of baked into her rather than sort of like a reason, a a rationally chosen, um, path. And I I hope, I hope she keeps going. If that's what's, you know, stand in your truth, Hillary Clinton. Um, I, don't I know.
1: guess I simultaneously hope that she keeps going and wish that she would stop coming up with slogans like <laughs> "resist,
0: resist <and laughs> onward resist,
2: together" resist, right, and right. "onward
1: and stronger together." Right, like, oh, right, right. there's a, she, it's not her. It's like I don't know. It always seems weirdly vapid to me. I don't yeah. quite get it, and I. You know, I both I'm divided. I feel like I of course she deserves to continue to have a voice and like to write about to write this book, to keep talking about it. And yet, there's a way in which she is ill-positioned to be our best backseat driver.
2: Yeah. To yeah. go back to your question, I mean, it's very, you know, I really read this book in some ways as a kind of as I said earlier, I felt this book was just um, you know, there were it was just striated with grief, right? And I felt like I do feel her writing through the trauma you know a kind of overused word but i think it was a trauma for her and for all of us the trauma of this loss and grappling with what it means you know her it's not just a loss for herself she really grapples and you can i felt that she very much felt she had failed the country you know that it's not just this isn't she didn't achieve something she wanted to achieve but that people's lives are going to be materially affected by her loss and by her failure and and i thought that came through really powerfully and i was actually shocked that so many reviewers and i thought most of them were men um, kind of said, oh, she didn't, you know, take the blame. She's always here. Are the, you know, the Vanity Fair published here are the reasons. You know, Hillary Clinton thinks she lost. Well, it's it's intellectually fair for her to say I lost it, and also let's look at what happened. Um, yes. Yeah. So I really read yeah. this as a kind of grief memoir, and the going on part of what I felt, which maybe kind of rhymes with what you felt, was. This is what you say to yourself when you're devastated. I mean, I felt her devastation, and maybe it's having gone through a couple of moments of devastation in very different, very much more limited ways where I really was not sure I would be able to go on. And, and that I really felt like this book was that. It was like how she coped with continuing. And I felt um, in certain sections, and we haven't really looked at the text, but there were certain sections where – you know, beneath the surface, I felt it seemed how close she was to not being able to go on, you know. And I also thought that the voice in this book that kind of informs that slight, I can't remember what you called it, like hokey or not believable, like those slogans, is her mother, who there's two moments in this book where Hillary's facing like a childhood bully and her mother says, there's no quitters in our house. You go back out there and face him. And I was like so horrified. But I also thought, wow, that explains so much about her. Um, in some way, I don't think I had fully taken in how influential her mother and her story was to her psyche, um, and to her inability to do certain kinds of connecting with people in a certain way.
0: Um, does that make sense. That is fascinating. Yeah. That's super yeah. fascinating. I'm also glad that we've gone a little bit Freudian because my um, impression of this book, um, and I, I think this is also informed by the experience of like listening to her relive a past trauma in the present tense, like listening to the audiobook. But I really felt like this was the psychoanalytic situation. Like yeah. she is processing a trauma. Yeah. She is speaking it out loud. She is reliving um, her past and Sort of the experience of the reader is this really interesting one where you are both kind of the analyst and the patient because you share that trauma and you're kind of working through it as she does. Um, you know, you're working through the text and she is working through the story and you're sort of put, if you're sympathetic to her perspective, you're sort of put in the same position that she is and I do think that there is something very therapeutic about this book. I guess maybe talking about it as a grief memoir is a more um, rich way to, to contextualize it than to say this is like uh, therapy. I, I hope that doesn't sound mm-hmm. condescending. No, I, I
2: think- um, and i think that emily that goes back to why you're frustrated with the like go on go on go on because and i think this that impulse to say that to herself comes from her mother and her her obviously never having been permitted as a child to kind of stop and be like i can't go on you know right. i can, i am quitting i can't which is which is what's remarkable about her i mean that i think is part yeah. of what i found very poignant and really powerful and and honestly inspiring i thought yeah let's mm-hmm. i'm going to pull up pull on my boots and keep going you know um, but it's also sometimes you think and she does do a remarkable job I thought of actually showing us how devastated she was I was surprised by how much she was able yeah, to put on the page but mm-hmm. she does you know th- <laughs> but this motif and again this is where the lack of introspection maybe comes in like it would have been interesting you know if it were a more literary memoir I think she would have paused and been like why do I keep pushing myself onward well here's what you know and given us context like the American muscle through it I got to keep going that's not who she is um, and so that's maybe what's a little Frustrating about that. Let's keep going. But I also That's think a really good it's admirable. Like, in a more literary memoir,
1: she would have said, right. "I can't keep going." She yeah. would have like let right. us in on right. the that moment. Scene. I mean, it's and she does. It's not that she doesn't show us her, her despair, but right. you're right. She's not really interrogating the reasons why she must have deeply felt like. No, I give up enough.
0: Enough of
1: that. Right. Stop, yeah. right.
2: Stop bullying yeah. me as a country. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: and I mean, you know, this is what it is.
2: I mean, that's what it yeah, is. I mean, and right. and it's it's inspiring. I mean, it's it's insane yeah. in certain way. <laughs> and inspire. I mean, I shouldn't say insane. It's it's it is what it is, right? It is what it is. She is who she is. It's it's. I have to say, I was I was inspired though. Um, it made me think a lot about perseverance as a woman um, mm-hmm. and and what mm-hmm. and about moments in my life, ongoing moments where I kind of am like, okay, I'm stepping away. Like, that's just too much to deal with. And thinking about, no, you know what? Actually, it's my job not to step away because that's a conversation I don't want to keep having.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're running up on time, so I wonder if we should do the I thing think we where, wrap we, it up. Yeah, where we uh, say whether we would recommend this. I don't even know if it's a book, this experience artifact. Um, yes, it is a book. Um, would we? Well, I
1: um, feel strongly that people actually should read this book. And this is partly a mea culpa because I talked, I when the book came out, I thought, okay, I really don't need to read that book. I'll just like read the reviews, read about it, or read the excerpts. And then I talked about it on the political gap fest, um, without having read it and got some justifiable criticism for that, which was why I was interested in doing this book club for you guys. And then reading it, I really felt like I had missed the boat by yapping about it without having read it that, and it's not that you have to like read every word carefully, but there is a way in which her voice, um, and her analyses that we've been talking about are there, they come together. And I don't think the reviews and the excerpts captured that.
2: Yeah, I recommend it. I mean, I I, it's funny, my husband, my partner asked last night if he should read it. And I was like, I don't know. But I think people should for the reason that Emily just did. I mean, I think I think I said that to him partly because he had read a lot of other books around the campaign and had kept up with it. But I think if you are interested in her, and even if you're critical of her, yes, it is definitely worth reading. I think she makes it a bit tough to let the spoonful of sugar go down because she adds – There's it's so long, right? And there's yeah. a, a very dreary section about, like, her day on the campaign and her hairdresser, yeah. which – Honestly, just skip over if you want to, but but. Th- Megan,
1: the hairdresser part—that's like part of being a woman. No, it's true. No, no,
2: no that, that part actually. Don't skip the hairdresser. <laughs> that part was good, but there was stuff about like the food. I don't know. I just <laughs> yeah. You can skip the goldfish. <laughs> actually, the stuff about the the hairdresser is good because she talks about how much longer it takes for her to get ready than for like Joe Biden, and I thought that I stuff mean, it was would be a huge that. drag to have to spend oh, that much time. On your hair so every that day. that I actually yes, I totally take that back. So all I'm saying is, I definitely think for the reasons Emily said, you should read the book. Um, I think though that you the reason I'm talking about how long is I think you have to go into it with a certain degree of patience and non-judgment. Yeah. I think you have to go into it non-judgmentally and really listen for what she's saying and listen for the fact that she does say on the one hand this, on the other hand that, but that she's getting at something by doing that, not equivocating, I think, in many places. There are the, the exceptions we talked about where she does equivocate or gloss over something very profoundly important. But I think in a lot of places, particularly about Russia and um, how to unify the country. There's something that important that she's trying to say, and you have to have a certain patience to get there because
0: it comes quite late in the book. Yeah, but yes, read uh, it. I would definitely agree with that. I think, I mean, to me, the primary value of this book is it's a really clear window into Hillary and everything that entails. So sort of the frustrations um, we talked about the flaws, ugh, flaws, um, but also the, the strengths and the, the inspirational and admirable qualities. So I just think, you know, she's an important figure in all of our lives, um, in the recent past. And I think the future, if she continues to be invoked by Fox News and, um, this is a important sort of piece of evidence, a testimony from a really important part of our history. So I would say, yeah, I mean, don't prepare to be um, delighted at every turn, but I, I do recommend it. Um, anyway, thank you guys so much. Uh, this, oh, was was, this was a very cathartic conversation.
1: Really, yeah, this was very rewarding. I feel like I really needed this conversation.
0: Me too,
2: and I'm <laughs> sorry. I wanted to talk with both of you. I about us, I feel like I talked too much, but it was because clearly I needed to process what no, I had been you were feeling. Great. No, you were perfect. <laughs> no, no, you thank guys were
1: perfect. Okay. <laughs> Till soon.
0: All right. Bye.
1: Bye, guys.
2: See you soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Audiobook Club. If you like this show, you should check out another great Slate show, Trumpcast, a quasi-daily podcast from Slate that sets out to understand the real Donald Trump. Jacob Weisberg, chairman of Slate, along with writer Virginia Heffernan and Slate chief political correspondent Jamel Bowie, talked to historians, psychiatrists, and other experts to help explain who this man is and why this is happening right now in the United States of America. It's a fantastic show, and I highly recommend it. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. Slate's audiobook club is part of the Panoply network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And thanks for the assist, AC Valdez. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Megan O'Rourke and Emily Bazelon, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening.